Hi there, and welcome back to another episode of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm the executive producer, Colin Morgan, and today on the show, John is joined by John Koss, who founded Pondera Solutions in 2011 with the goal to reduce fraud in the U.S. government programs like Medicaid and unemployment insurance. Now, John built this business to more than $9 million in annual recurring revenue before accepting an offer from Thomson Reuters for $124 million. Now, one thing before we jump in, if you're interested in reading Thomson Reuters' first quarter SEC report, where the $124 million acquisition was revealed along with some other interesting tidbits, I've linked to that report in the show notes section, which can be found on our episode page over at built to Sell. Just head over to page 15 of that report to view the deal terms of this acquisition. Now, I hope you enjoy listening to how John Koss sold Pondera Solutions to Thomson Reuters for almost 14 times ARR. Enjoy. John Koss, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thanks, John. Great to be here. Tell me about Pondera. And I've read the press release and I got to admit, I'm still confused. So do it, do it for me like I'm 12 years old. Explain what Pandera did. Yeah. So basically, um, I started the company in 2011. And the idea was to leverage the power of cloud computing and advanced analytics to combat fraud, waste, and abuse in large government programs. So I've been working in government now, it's been 30 years, and this problem of fraud, waste, and abuse always really bothered me. And I'm, I'm happy to provide examples that I've worked on. But when I saw cloud computing come and the ability to actually like rent this really incredibly powerful computing and these, and these advanced analytics and the beginnings of AI and machine learning coming out, I saw an opportunity to, to really address this problem and I took it. Yeah. Give me a really simple example, not a super fancy one, but just a simple example of how your software might spot some fraud or waste or abuse. Yeah, I mean, probably the best ones came out of the pandemic, even though we started in 2011. In 2020, a lot of it became very public. So, for example, there were just so many stories of um, in the unemployment insurance system, um, prisoners applying for unemployment insurance and systems being overloaded and even on bad actors coming in from across the country and applying for unemployment insurance and being paid because the system was so overwhelmed to the tune of billions and billions of dollars. So during the pandemic, our software literally helped the country avoid paying over $60 billion worth of fraud, waste, and abuse. It was, it was incredible. Do you get letters from, from, from taxpayers saying thank you uh, <laughs> for your software? <laughs> but I've, I've occasionally gotten a call from uh, you know, someone who wasn't very happy with what we did. Uh, like yeah. Threatening messages. Okay. So, but let me, let, me, let me try to understand this. So, you're, so let's say the example of a prisoner who's not entitled to unemployment insurance applied nefariously during the pandemic because he realized that the government systems were overloaded, they weren't checking up, and they were just cutting checks here, there, and everywhere. How would your software spot that fraud effectively? Yeah, so it was a number of ways. Um, So the way it worked is the customer, the client, a government agency would provide us with um, basically all of their information. 
So in the case of unemployment insurance, it would be the applicant information, the employer information, and then the actual payments going out. In Medicaid, it was actual transactions. So we had, by the time I left, we were running about 40% of the country's Medicaid. And we would actually see all of the claims, doctor visits, codes, all of that type of information. And then we would process it. And there were three basic ways we would process it. One was doing some data matching services. So in the case of like prisoners, like you brought up, we would match it against third-party data sources very quickly, near real time and say, wait a minute, you know, this person's not only in prison, but is in prison in Florida and applying in California. Uh, there were literally <laughs> famous okay. prisoners yeah, on death row receiving payments. <laughs> then we'd also um, run it through a number of sort of like binary models just to check, is this person who they say they are? You know, is it a hysterectomy on, we performed on a male? You know, those types of things. And then we had some AI models that looked for more, you know, skilled fraud. This sounds like one of those like huge technology businesses. My first, it, like my first inclination is like the level of security you must have had to build into this software to get governments to hand over their data about you know, medical records. And it must have been enormous, but all that comes at a huge cost. How did you finance the startup? I mean, did you just have a, a truckload of personal wealth coming into it or did you raise money or like, what? how did you figure out the money stuff in the beginning? Yeah, well, I'd, I'd love to say I had a huge trust fund and that's how I funded it, but um, it's not the case. I had, um, I've started a, a few businesses, but the businesses I started before Pondera were more lifestyle businesses. Sure. Um, I had I'd worked in the tech industry for a long time, ten years with Oracle, and then I started a couple companies, and they were acquired, but you know not for large sums. And then um, when I started Pondera, the really cool thing was that a lot of the costs in starting a tech business were sort of gone with the cloud. I didn't have to buy servers, I didn't have to buy software, I didn't have to buy a room to stick it all in and refrigeration and everything else. It was just it was there to rent. So I was able to invest in people and I invested in really smart people to use those rentable assets to build this up. And as you mentioned, you know, very early on, one of the people I invested in was uh, ISO. Um, I got him out of a, a health plan. So my information security officer, he was a former Israeli intelligence officer. Um, he wasn't a ton of fun to be around. That was kind of his point. Um, <laughs> And, you know, government has certainly all kinds of regulations between HIPAA and um, SOC compliance that we had to um, work towards. And even with all that, and we went above and beyond the requirements, it, that's the one thing that really just, other than losing all my money, losing some of that data and a breach just always, always scared me, even as yeah. much as we, you know, as we prevented it. We actually never exposed our application to the internet either. So there was always a site to site VPN just to lock it down even more because it, it's just not okay to lose that sort of data. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Okay. So how did you come up with the money to build even your, you said you're renting space on servers, but you had to hire people. So did you, like, how much did you personally invest or did you raise money? What was that like? Yeah. So I looked at raising money really early. I went to some of the local angels, um, but that did not work out for variety of reasons I can describe. So I ended up um, just bootstrapping it. So from 2011 to 2013, I invested a fair amount of money. I was probably in for, I don't know, six, $700,000. And this is money that I intended to use to retire and to fund my lifestyle. And that I've worked a long time. 
you know, to build up. I, I never dipped into the kids' college savings accounts, but, you know, I was close. And I, I was always reminded of, you know, the shark tank where they say, take your idea back and shoot it because it's, it's just not going to make it. And I went two years without a single dollar of revenue just funding this company. Two years? Two years, t- 2011 to 2013. I mean, like you said, it was a big technology, you know, bet, but also I was selling the government and you may realize that government doesn't move real fast. So what it was, uh, it that, was, it was frightening. What was the, what were the signs that gave you confidence it was going to work? Cause two years is a long time to go without any revenue. Like what sort of, cause I think a lot of people are, you know, when they, when they have an idea, they're always like, you know, they've, they've heard the Colonel Sanders story about yeah. selling the chicken recipe like a hundred times or whatever before anybody said yes. And, and so there's sort of this folklore in entrepreneurship about like stick to it and that's just, you got to just keep picking up the phone and dialing. There's that kind of notion. And then there's another school of thought, which is like, you know, fail fast, and pivot and you know, like all these things have become sort of overused uh, terms. Yeah. But I, I, I'm guessing there was something you were seeing that was giving you confidence to continue because it certainly wasn't in your bank account. <laughs> no, it wasn't. Help me understand that. You know, I don't know if it was signs as much as delusions. I mean, I, I'm probably the worst person to ask about that because there were a lot of times and reasons I, I should have just, I should have just packed it up, but I, I was convinced that it was going to work. And, and I think that, that came from a couple of things. One is, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge patriot. And I feel like if you're trying to do good while doing well, then somehow that's going to get you through. And the thought of being able to do good, you know, really just sort of kept me moving forward. And it's not just about the financial part, by the way, but, you know, I had seen stories of doctors that were treating healthy patients as if they had cancer so they could bill Medicaid or swapping insurer in the feeding tubes, you know, to save money and then selling on the side. And it sickened me. And I, I wanted so badly to do something about that. I was just convinced I was going to find people that really cared enough to do it with me and to try, try to take a chance. And I would. I would find people that were really enthusiastic about it. And I think the thing that got me was a few of those people that were really, really convinced. For example, someone in the AG's office in Florida that I had talked to early. He said, you know, it's going to take me forever to bring you in. But why don't I go with you? I want to come with you. And I want to help you get this around the country because it's so important. And, and having someone like that that had lived that his whole life, be that convinced that he was going to leave a promising career and, and join me, just a couple of guys trying to do something was, was really sort of galvanizing. And uh, sure enough, that, you know, that person worked his butt off uh, for me for years and, uh, and owe him a lot. And I really think it helped me move forward. Walk me through. So these are people that you hired. You, so you were not paying market rate salaries for these people? I'm assuming they kind of took a flyer, took some equity in the deal? Or how did you recruit these these people? It's kind of a combination of all of them. So like people that I took out of government, like this person from the AG's office, they needed market rate salaries. They just tend to be less um, risk-taking in terms of their you know, finances and careers. So I had to pay them and I paid them out of my own you know, pocket. Um, how others, did you deal with the, the pensions they were walking away from? Yeah, I mean, the nice thing about government is a lot of them can go back <laughs> for pensions. Uh, okay. And, you know, if, if it didn't work out, they knew that they could go back into government and pick up where they left off. Some of them already had enough years in um, to be able to, you know, retire. They would still have health care pension and they'd be getting more money from us. So, you know, like later on, I hired a 25-year FBI 
agent to help us with our models. And he already had his pension, was incredibly helpful to us. So I just, you know, that that's sort of the government's place. And about half of our our company, we hired directly out of government. On the other side, you know, I did a lot of cajoling and selling. And, you know, I'm not smart enough to build the software myself, but I'm pretty good at convincing people sometimes of what the dream is. And I had, like my president, who I took from 25 years from Oracle, who I'd worked with before, he he told me that it was like being taken out to the desert by Bugsy Siegel and saying, can't you see it? And it's just a desert, but I'm showing him Las Vegas. And I brought him on for nothing and pure equity and, you know, it worked out well for him. But it, it's, it was just a combination. It was crazy. It was fun. Um, but at the same time, I felt a real debt and obligation to these folks to make sure that, you know, that, that we delivered on the dream. And that was a big, big burden. Tori, the, the president, you said something, you skipped over quickly, and then, but I want to make sure I double click on it. You said you brought the president over for nothing and he took equity? Like No salary. Still reminds me of that. Calls himself an idiot. <laughs> Um, he made a lot of money the previous few years. He was very, very successful, really good salesperson, um, operations guy as well. And he came over for no salary. He actually bought into the business. It was very early. Um, I think we had one client at the time um, in Iowa and uh, in an equity position. How did you value the business so early? Like, I'm always fascinated by this because all of the kind of standard industry multiples don't really mean much when it's just, as you say, an empty desert in the, in the Vegas countryside. Uh, how did you value the business for your president? Like what was like, how, how did that work? You know, it, it wasn't any formal type of, you know, formula that we went through. I okay. mean, I tried to do that early. Like when I talked to um, the angel investors all the way back to like 2011, 2012 and, a lot of it was just based on Tam and Sam and, you know, our experience and, um, you know, the lack of competition and that type of thing. But by the time I brought our, our president in, it was really more of a conversation. Um, it just honestly was, look, here's the opportunity to hear the struggles. We knew each other. We're both, you know, honest to a fault and just had a discussion about what we thought would be fair. And, uh, you know, that guy stuck through it in some very, very difficult times continue to put some money in to fund the business um, with me. So it wasn't just my burden after he joined. And so it was very, very informal, you know, all the way probably till 2017 when we eventually took a, a, a private equity investment, then it got formal really quick. <laughs> yeah. Tell, before, I want to ask you about the private equity investment before though, you, you use two acronyms, TAM, Total Addressable Market. I know that one. You use the acronym SAM. What is that for? Yeah, and I don't even know if that's really still around, but it stood for serviceable addressable market. So okay. you have this TAM, which in my space was gigantic. So the way I actually looked at the TAM was in government every year, they give out about $2.1 trillion worth of benefits. And about 10% of that is typically fraud, waste, and abuse. So $210 billion a year. And then sort of the going rate, if you were going to do a, a payment based on what you found, would be about 10% of that. So it was a huge TAM. Realistically, though, a company my size, um, of the ability to reach out to all of these different programs and sell them, that's what the SAM represented, which was not the full TAM. And then we would just do sort of a, a, a capture percentage of that SAM as a, the sort of back of the napkin uh, evaluate, valuation. Got it. Okay. That's super helpful. I had never heard that. So that brings me up to speed. Tell me more about 2017. So 
So what triggered you to want to raise a round of investment? Where were you guys at at the time? Maybe walk me through that. Yeah. So, you know, the, the real brief history, I think I mentioned from 2011 to 2013, we did nothing and just built, made every mistake possible. You know, my, my first assumption was that I could just take that cloud computing and these new analytics and do fraud, waste, and abuse detection the same way it always been done, but with more power. And that would make us more effective. And it was a great thought and it was completely wrong. So then like in 2012, when I was thinking about literally folding up, some smarter people on my team really got together, met in Maryland. I remember we just had a discussion of how we're going to change this. And we came up with a whole new way of doing it. And it turned out that it was pretty effective. So 2013, we got our first client. It was Iowa and uh, doing their unemployment insurance uh, detection. And then we just started to move a little bit from there. In later in 2013, something really lucky happened for us. And I'm, I'm taking you back because it leads up to what 2017, but not lucky for you know the general public, but for us. And that was the California Medicaid program was exposed on Anderson Cooper. He ran a multi-part series with the Center for Investigative Journalism on all the fraud in the alcohol and drug program as part of Medicaid. And it was awful. I mean, you could still go look at it on YouTube and the things that were happening and the abuse of some of these people that really needed help was really, really bad. So they put out a bid and they needed to do something quickly about, you know, about this. And some of the larger companies bid, the IBMs of the world, and then we bid. And we were able to say, look, we can do this and we can do it quickly and get it up in three months and stop this abuse. And we were awarded that contract. And we performed very well on it. So we started to pick up a few more contracts and all was good until right about 2016 when California decided to put out a huge contract for all of their Medicaid program. And my premise had always been, look, I'm, I'm just a guy in Sacramento with a few smart people. I can fly under the radar and not compete directly with Deloitte and IBM and Accenture and all of these companies that were just crushing it. And then that California contract came out and it was a $10 million a year contract. Well, they pay attention to that. So I thought two things at the time. Number one, we're going to need some stronger financial backing. We're going to need a better balance sheet. You know, we're going to be, we're going to have to invest in order to deliver on a contract if we want it. And, and honestly, the second one was, I just thought I needed some gray matter around me, some smart people that have been through this before that knew how to tackle these larger contracts, compete with some of these larger companies. And that's when we decided to start looking at some, at some private equity. And maybe why private equity? Were you stuck on private equity? Were you also considering kind of venture capital or angels? Or were you, were you really focused on private equity? Yeah, that's it's a great question. It was really, um, we, we talked to everybody. I must have talked to 100 different companies and had just incredibly different experiences. So. VCs to small private equity to really large private equity. I'm still not sure I know the difference between the two of them in some cases. Everybody's got a different definition, right? Like when they invest or how they invest. But we talked to so many different companies and to the point where I thought it was smart just to bring in a banker. So we did bring in a banker because we were, by this time we were getting so much inbound. Um, mm -hmm. We'd been published as part of a list of 100 companies doing good for government. It's called the GovTech mm -hmm. 100. And I think, you know, there were a lot of these guys that were just trolling that list and calling the companies. 
And where are you revenue wise at this point? I know you had the $10 million a year opportunity with California, but roughly yeah. where would you have been kind of annual revenue at this point? We Ish. were three to four in revenue. Okay. And okay. even the 10 million, we were going to look at a partner. So we weren't going to take the entire opportunity. Yeah. So, but we were three or four in, in revenue. So it put us in this weird spot because, you know, like angels, we'd already moved past. And when I dealt with angels in the past, they would take forever to sort of put together a term sheet. And then I'd go out and get a customer and I'd say, well, the deal I was talking about before doesn't exist anymore. And then, you know, we kind of kept doing that. And in the VCs, you know, we're starting to say, hey, based on especially some of the contracts in the pipeline, you're probably getting a little too big for us. And so we started talking to PEs. And we actually had a term sheet with a very, very large PE out of New York, um, multi-billions. And um, we went all the way sort of to the 12th hour with them and it, and it fell apart. And, uh, and I pulled back at that point and said, we, we've got to try to bootstrap this. We've been also talking to a bunch of strategics at the same time. So there was a lot of sort of activity during that space. Very disruptive to a business too. I'm very hard. Yeah. So you're, so you're three or four million in, in revenue. Uh, obviously, these large billion dollar private equity groups saw something, the potential size of this market. Uh, what, what were the deal terms on the table with the giant if we leave their name out, we, maybe we can get into what they were offering in the way of money and and why it fell apart. Are you able to share sort of yeah, that, for where sure. they were at on those terms? Sure. And and listen, they were great and um and you know, I think smart and I think, you know, looking back on it even at the time, I think a lot of the reason that we went as far as we did with them and why it was so hard when it broke up was less about business and more about ego. I mean, I was mm. just really stoked to have a company like that be interested in me and my small company and, you know, an idea that I had. And so it just kind of, it got me so excited that, you know, we, we really went very far down with them despite some red flags that we saw. But the idea was that, you know, I think the reason why they were interested in a lot of others were is that, you know, this government space at the time was really uninvested in by private equity. And I would always make the argument that at the time, government was about 40% of the GDP and like 2% of funding was going into it. And I, I just couldn't understand why these PEs wouldn't put more money into this huge space where they could probably get better deals because it was less competitive for them. And I think some of them started to see that and started to talk to us. And then our we had a platform, really. I mean, it was a platform that we could plug other data into and other models into. So our partners were really you know, pretty neat partners, companies like Lexus and Thomson Reuters and Apris and others that were way bigger than we were. But we were driving a fair amount of revenue for them because we were driving this data through our analytics and our models. And so I think a lot of people looked at that and said, well, this is a way to really go after this government market in a pretty big way as a platform. So this company was going to invest a lot. It was about 25 million for the first round, you know, and I'd been bootstrapping it up till that time. So that number sounded like, you know, 25 trillion to me. <laughs> And, um, and were, how much of the company were they going to take? A lot. So they were going to take a majority position in the company. And that was one of the things, honestly, that, that scared me. I still felt like we had a long way to go. And when I looked at all the reasons they could fire the CEO, it, you know, it was like if I was wearing the wrong color tie or I <laughs> walked in the office a minute late. And uh, that, that worried me. Um, I remember my president. Um, who I mentioned earlier said, 
said, well, yeah, you'd be worried, but I feel like the second guy in Al Qaeda just waiting for the first guy to go out. And then I got to look at the sky all the time. And uh, it just felt like that. Like it was, it felt very cutthroat. Was the 25 million going in your genes and your, you and your partner, or were they expecting that you'd leave most or all that on the balance sheet to fund growth? Yeah. In this case, it was mostly into the company. So I call that primary and secondary shares. I don't know if they're, that's the yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah. That, but we, we sort of flipped it when we actually did a deal in 2017. But in this case, most of it was going into the company because it was a big bet. And the other thing I got to sort of confess to is that, you, look, you get excited, you fall in love with your own product. And we were very aggressive in our projections and opportunity. I mean, of course you are, right? Otherwise, you wouldn't do the business. But you know what happened to us was when we started to get to term sheets, then you would see that enthusiasm in that term sheet in terms of what goals you were supposed to hit, how many markets, how many customers. And then when you actually see it on paper, you're like, holy crap, did I say that? And you realize you, you kind of did, right? right. And, then, and then, you know, you know, somebody's going to put $25 million into you. That's what they want to see. And, it, and it, becomes, it becomes pretty frightening when you actually are faced with it. Yeah. So what was the straw that broke the camel's back in that deal? Like what was, you mentioned there were a few things. Do you, do you remember like, was there like one lightning rod moment where you're like, we're out? Yeah. Um, actually, they were out, which is interesting. Um, they um, called me and they were in part of their due diligence. They had been speaking to a, a person in the market about the Medicaid market in, in particular, because that's the biggest market. You know, Medicaid is such a huge program here in the United States. and um, the person had told them that the market was moving from what's called fee-for-service to managed care. It's basically like being um, moving from you're charged for every procedure that a doctor does into more of like an HMO situation. And they explained that that really reduces the fraud because in fee-for-service, if I, if I do three things for you, I might charge four and get a little fraud, right? But in HMO, you're just paid a capitated rate. I'm paid, you know, $500 a month for you, whatever, whatever it is. And then it's unlimited, you know, services. So fraud kind of goes away. I kept explaining that it doesn't go away. It actually becomes much worse because, for example, let's say you're really sick. I'd rather collect my capitated rate but not treat you like you're really sick because that's expensive for me. So you might die. That's better for me than me treating you and then you die. Um, and there's all kinds of shenanigans that could be played with, you know, drugs, with um People who actually had died, and you're still collecting capital. It's like the wild west, man. That's scary stuff. Okay, but, uh, so they see this, but they don't. You don't. They don't buy your argument. They, exa- like, exactly. Once again, I wasn't very convincing, and um, it just broke apart, and it was it was devastating. I think it was partly because we were just so proximated. We'd gone so far down with them, and done so much work and so much due diligence, and right at the end, it's like they pull it out, and you're just exhausted. It, it's like running a marathon and quitting in mile twenty five. Yeah, you're three to four million revenue and it's still burning cash or are you profitable at this point? Or a bit we, we would kind of pop up a little bit and then pop down and pop up a little bit and pop down. So I'd say we we're close to, you know, cash break even. Okay. Um, okay. But we were also compromising. You know, I was take I would take an opportunity knowing that it wasn't like a pure SaaS opportunity. Maybe it had a service component. Or maybe it was front loaded because, you know, they'd gotten a grant from the federal government to do something. So then the next years would be lower. And I was doing that, like to fund operations. And every time I did it, I said, man, I'm going to have to explain this someday to some investor. And, 
And so we weren't super pure because we couldn't be really pure because of the need for cash. And it bothered me, but we did what we had to, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I totally hear you for sure. Walk us through what happens next. So there's another successful capital raise. I think it happened in 2017. So maybe right. you pick, pick up the pieces from this broken deal. Where, where does it go from there? Yeah. So I quit the fundraising thing. I said, we're done. And I we kept our banker on who, by the way, was, I owe that guy and his team, just everything. I mean, they, they just stuck with us. They weren't in a rush to sell. It didn't feel like one of those real estate agents that says, well, cut the price by 100K, we'll sell. You know, he was just very realistic and, and rolled up his sleeves side by side. And I said, look, you take all the inbound, but just tell them we're not interested. And he did that for a while. And then I got one call um, from a guy who just called me directly from a company called Serent Capital in um, San Francisco. And he was just so like genuine. He was a, um, I, don't, I don't know what his title was at the time, but like a senior director, just a, just under partner and his partner now. And he just like professed this genuine love for entrepreneurs and, you know, and said that he would drive from San Francisco to Lake Tahoe and he passed through Sacramento and there are these businesses like mine there and he'd drive by him and he just thought that was so cool. And, you know, and he just, I just said, look, I'm done. I, I don't want to do this. It's just been too difficult. And he said, just give me one hour, one hour. I'm going to drive up, talk to you. And we did that. And um, I was just super impressed with him. And, and, Honestly, at the time, we'd already started discussions with another strategic that was a data supplier of ours that I also really liked, sort of accidentally um, liked. And they were getting ready to give us a term sheet to buy the whole business. Hmm. So I told him that and said, we kind of have to move quickly. So we put in, you know, like a 30 day um, LOI and uh, started to do some due diligence. And, um, you know, we just kind of went from there. And and what was their LOI? Were they going to, how do they value the business? What, what were they looking for in terms of uh, primary, secondary, that, that kind of stuff? Yeah. So they, um, you know, I told them that it, it was time for me to take some risk off the table. So I did want some primary shares. We were close to cash even positive, like I told you. <laughs> so the LOI, which by the way, when they gave us a number, which was, I'm always really bad with figures, but so over 10 million, what is that? Eight, eight figures. So there was, a, it was an eight figure offer for us and it was for half the business. And I also told them that I really had concerns about giving away, you know, majority uh, control based on what I'd been through before. And the majority of that money actually went into the shareholders bank accounts. And then you put, and the Oracle guy. Yeah. And a couple small ones, but mostly, mostly that. And the rest of it um, went into the business itself. And from day one, the number that they put in their MOI, despite all the ups and downs and are you gap compliance and revenue concentration problems and all of these things that they talked about, they never wavered on that number. Hmm. And they never came back and tried to stick it to me. And uh, it just m means a lot to me, you know, and I would, yeah. I would certainly highly recommend the people that I worked with because they were just honest, good people. Fantastic. You're referring, of course, to retrading, which happens with less scrupulous folks. Oh, all the time. So, um, so it was an eight-figure offer of which, uh, it, it, and they were getting more than half of the business, was like the majority of? Half. Right half. at half. Okay, got it. Interesting. Like 50.1? Like, did they have control? Or was nope. it literally 50%? Half. It's interesting, interesting. right? 
And yeah, uh, that is interesting. What was any any backstory there? I, well, I remember telling him, I'm like, I'm a history major, and I said the last time there was shared command was like 1803 with Lewis and Clark, and you know yeah. it worked then, but it hasn't worked since. It's like, um, but I, I think it was it was that was one of the things to me that was just really unique about them. They were not worried about it, and they just felt like you know they everybody says they invest in people. But they really did invest in people. And they said, you know, one of the things we love about your business is we're getting two CEOs with you and, and Greg, the, my president at the time. And, you know, the ability to get that as well as a really neat business is, is super attractive to us. And so we might do things a little bit differently. The other thing that I told them was that, you know, we had this big runway in front of us. We had a great pipeline. So I, I wanted sort of three bites at the apple. I wanted the original one where I would take some risk off the table. And I wanted certainly the next exit to be compensated nicely, which is why I didn't want to give away so many shares in the company and you know sell 80% or something. It wasn't, it wasn't a rollover. Like I wanted to be the partner going into the next one. Mm-hmm. And then the third was um, I wanted some type of earn from them as well. You know, we wanted a payment and we agreed that it would come in the form of a seller's note um, if we hit certain um, revenue targets over the, I think it was the next 12 months or 18 months, something like that. So it was kind of a neat deal that we put together. And when we looked at it versus our uh, the, the, the strategic, that was buy 100% of the company. And a lot of the uh, deal was going to be in shares. So we would get some cash and then share rollovers. They were a PE back mm-hmm. company. Now, they eventually sold for over a billion dollars. They did extremely well. Great management team, really neat people. I have no idea if I would have done better on that deal or this one. I never put the math together. I'm not going to because I did fine, you know, and it's just not worth looking back. Um, but it was so, a neat deal that we came up with. Okay, so so triple kind of triple win. So I just want to understand. It. So there's a there's an amount of money uh, that you get. I've heard it referred to as a downstroke or or in secondary shares, meaning you could take that cash, put it in your jeans, and that's that's yours to keep. Yes. Then there's you rolled some equity, meaning you you. You continue to maintain some of your equity, which you hoped would grow over time. And yes. it did. We'll get to that. And then there was an earnout uh, where you had certain, you and Greg had certain goals to hit in the future. And there'd be a, a kind of another payment if you achieved those goals. Yeah. And the payment was actually a seller's note. So the way that worked, well, all three of them were interesting and they all three worked out well for us. But the seller's note was, a note, if we hit those goals, that would be made payable to us and paid upon the sale of the business. I you see. Know? So it's basically, you. hey, you're in 100 grand. We're not going to give you 100 grand in cash. But when we sell, the first money out is going to be that 100 grand. That you we got, got it. You got it. Got it. It was pretty got neat. It. Pretty neat idea. And, and obviously, the original, I'm going to tell you something I shouldn't tell you because it's embarrassing now. But you got to remember, I was making no money for years. And it, it was hard. You look at my social security statement, it's hilarious. I mean, it's like, oh, really good year? Zero, zero. Good year, zero, zero. And um, when I got that original check, I asked for it in paper. They're like, what are you talking about? And the reason I wanted to put it in paper, and this is, this is bad, I actually wanted to take that paper check down to the bank and deposit it and have some people say, wow, that's a big check. And uh, embarrassing to say now, but you got to understand what I was going through. I hadn't put any money in that damn bank for like two years, not taking a lot out. So <laughs> I did that too. It was, I, I don't know, the whole process makes you into somebody you're not. And, and, and I did that. 
Well, no, I mean, it's, it's something to be proud of. You obviously had an idea six years prior and it was just a, uh, a kind of vision at that time. And you obviously sacrificed a tremendous amount. So it was a grind. Yeah. 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 No, I don't think there's anything weird about that at all. What happened to that check? Did you keep it? I didn't. No, I just made the deposit. And what I didn't know was when you're depositing a large check, it takes a long time. They started calling all these people. I was there for an hour and a half. And so I was, and then by that time, I was more embarrassed and a little bit ashamed, you know, than right. anything else. Um, Next time, just wire the money, will you please just wire it? <laughs> never do that again. Hopefully, there'll be another opportunity, but never do that one again. Okay. So, so Sarah comes in. Uh, they get you to roll some equity. So you and, and Greg both rolled equity or? We did. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Got it. And where does it go from there? So, you know, things got interesting after that. Um, you know, we built out a board. Um, the, one of the neat things from Sarent is it gave us an opportunity to really access some really good people that we never would have had access to before. I actually built this company on a lot of it on the premise of a book uh, called License to Steal. And it was, it's about fraud in the Medicaid system. And it was written by a Harvard professor and a really national expert on fraud. And Saren actually put me in touch with him to see if he would consider being on our board. And he'd never been on a board before. He'd been asked a number of times, as you can imagine. He's always testifying in front of Congress and Senate and mm -hmm. very strong on this. And I went out and met with him and he was very skeptical, but liked what, our approach and ended up joining our board. So things like that, that was that gray matter that I really wanted, right? And he, it, like, he was able to bring people to us. We got another expert in product. Um, you know, I was the product manager at the time. I'm not a product manager. So having somebody you know, come in and be able to look at that and put some actual maturity behind it was really good. So some really good things happened from 2017 to 2020 when we were acquired and then some not so good ones. So... Like one of the big mistakes we made is, and, and this is so like against my better judgment, we had been having some success having SMEs sell into these government programs. By SME, I mean a subject matter expert. So we would hire someone like that from government that worked in the SNAP program or the UI program, and they would sell into this, this space. But they're not salespeople. So literally, Greg and I would have to go in and close the deal and negotiate the terms and all of that type of thing. But they would sort of position it. So we said, well, you know, we came from Oracle. We'll just hire this great sales team and we'll throw it at it. And that'll be sort of the, you know, the wood in the fire or the gas on the fire. And it didn't work. So we spent a lot of that money and time um, putting those salespeople in. But, you know, they'd be selling into these program people that were in charge of Medicaid for state. And they'd be looking at it going, why am I talking to a salesperson? You know, these are not the type of people I, I talk to. So we really struggled um, with that for a little bit. Wasted some money, wasted some time. It was difficult. But, you know, having Sarah behind us, it just sort of righted the ship. And, you know, I'm not going to lie. There was one time I got called by the um, our board chair from uh, Sarant. And, and we had seven board members at the time, Greg and me, two from Sarant and three independents. So I'm... He asked me to come down and have dinner with him in San Francisco. And I thought I was, you know, going to get fired or going to be told, hey, look, the board's talking. You need to move on because we were struggling. And, and we had two CEOs, right? So Greg 
was certainly capable of stepping right up and in. Not that he would have been in on it because we're very loyal to each other. But um, I went down there and, and I, I said, okay, you know, is this what this is about? And he's just started laughing. He said, oh, my God, I just never thought you would think that. And I should have. I, I actually called you down to say, hang in there. You're like an A-plus CEO. We need you to keep going. I, I should have known that you were going to think that way, right? Um, but it was, it was just, it, there was, there were some difficult times, let's just put it that way. And then, and then certainly we won the California contract and some others and, and things started to look better. Interesting. And so when you're describing these difficult times, it sounds like one challenge was trying to replicate the Oracle sales model into your business. How did it go with Greg? Because I'd imagine coming from Oracle, he was pretty proud of his Oracle experience and pretty bought into that as an idea. Did that create tension? It was very hard on Greg. Um, it didn't create tension between us, but he's like me. I mean, I hired my executive team by this time was about um, six people and every single one of them felt like they were responsible for the business. They just, they owned it. They lived it. They breathed it. They took on the stress. Just and I, I like to run my teams more like a partnership than like a hierarchy. I mean, I think if you get really smart people and hardworking people and honest people to come work for you, don't tell them what to do, you know, and, and just let them do their own thing. In fact, I have this thing called a bucket theory where um, I, I feel like my job is to explain what the problem is, but then to take some really smart people, throw them into the bucket, and they'll figure out what the answer is. That's not my job. It's just arrogant to think that it would be. Enough. How did you structure their compensation? I, I get Greg had shares. Yeah. I'm assuming by this time he had a salary. Uh, he did. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> so what about the other six? What, he's not that philanthropic. Right. <laughs> what, what about the other six? How did you create? Because again, uh, different strokes for different folks. Some people are very top down and they have a very, you know, they keep 100% of the equity and they tell their you know, lieutenants what to do. It sounds like you're a much more collaborative leader, but I guess that only works if, if there's alignment from a comps perspective, how did the six other folks get comped? Yeah, so it was um, it was a mix. Again, a few of the people that I had hired from government had ridden, risen to the executive team. So I had a, a woman named Amanda that was an expert in SNAP, and she had risen up to run. I mean, honestly, she ran probably 70% of the business. But the way we compensated her, having come from government, her particular situation was just increasing salary, and she was making a very nice, healthy salary at that point. With you know some opportunity to earn on the back end, uh, my head of uh, technology had also been hired out of government, so he was more salary you know heavy. And then Sherry, who ran our um, sort of business development and contracts, she'd come out of the commercial world, so she was more interested in equity. So she got a little bit less salary and a little bit more of an equity position. So it was sort of split all around. You know, John, one of the things I found out really early was I was trying to compensate people with equity to come in. And it was really interesting because a lot of people saw like no value in that and they'd rather have money and benefits. And then I'm giving it away and I see, I'm like, it hurt me so bad to give a share away. And then I'm giving it and they don't value it. And it was like, I'm going to start being a little bit smarter and understand what people's, you know, personal incentives are and try to do it that way. I love this point. It's so important. And particularly young new entrepreneurs tend to think, oh, I want, I want to feel like we're the three musketeers and we're all in this together. So I'm going to give equity. And, the, and, and some people love that, but there are other employees who are like, no, no, just, just give me a salary. I don't, like, I'd rather have the money. Such a really interesting point. How, did, were you transparent about it with the team? Did you say, 
you know, employee A had, you know, we're giving her more salary or was this all secret and not shared amongst the team? Yeah, no, that part was more, I mean, I personally, I come from a space where I just think that's more private, like even mm-hmm. back to family, we just didn't talk about money. I didn't know how much my dad made, you know, my kids didn't know how much. So it was more of a, a private thing, but certainly, um, I think I was probably transparent about the business, maybe to a fault because I think people got concerned, worried. We would do monthly meetings when we would talk about, you know, how our balance sheet looked and how our P&L looked and what our pipeline looked like and what our challenges were. And I really, I wanted people to feel part of the business. And it was sort of like the equity thing. Some people really valued it. Other people got really scared by it. And, um, you know, if I had it to do all over again, I, I might sort of try to find the balance a little bit better, but I'm just a super open person. And mm. I felt like those types of people that could handle it were mature enough that, you know, they could ride it through with us. And so how's your, your cash flow going? Because Sarah put some, when they bought 50%, some of it went into the business, other went to you and Greg. So that the portion that they put in the business, are you starting to kind of grind that down and starting to have cash flow issues or expected? Uh, do I have to answer that question? <laughs> your honor. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please do. Uh, okay. So yeah, we burned through that cash a lot quicker than we wanted to. Because so, of the failure in these salespeople. Yeah, and we really did invest in these places. We ended up losing uh, a fairly large client in New York. They had been um, on a government grant when the grant ran out, despite our good performance. They decided not to fund the program anymore. That took a big chunk out of revenue. So by 2000, um, early, sorry, late 2018, early 2019, we actually had to go out and get some debt. I had never done that before. Scared the crap out of me. I don't like Because you'd run out of cash, to be clear. We, we had run out of cash. And I, you know, you know, shows you sort of how mature I was. I was telling Sarah, well, I'll just write another check. I'll put more money in there. Like, that's not how it works anymore. And, and we don't want you to be stressed, right? Like, we, we know what you were like when we met you. We don't want you to be like that again. You got other stresses, but not that. So... We, um, we want to, again, working with Sarant and some smart people, they brought in uh, a debt option, like a, almost like a venture debt, where we would uh, take in cash. We ended up taking about $6 million mm-hmm. of debt, and we would pay an interest rate on that. Obviously, I was introduced to the wonderful world of covenants at that point, and then also um, a small equity stake. Uh, which I think ended up being worth about a, a million dollars on the sale. And that really, I, I was actually, I was with my um, girlfriend at the time and now my wife, who I ended up marrying during the pandemic and feel very blessed to have a chance to be happy again um, through all this. But um, I was in Las Vegas with her. She was on a business trip and I went out to see a show or something and I flew back to meet with these guys. Um, and it was it was just a crazy time. What made it so tr- crazy? Just, you know, I don't know how you are, but I, I pay off my credit cards. I pay cash for my cars. I, I, the thought of debt just in my personal life, it always really worried me. I don't know why. I mean, you know, my, my parents didn't have much money. My mom was a farmer in France and came over as a poor au pair. I, had, I still have her wooden shoes, you know, to wow. sort of, yeah, that she came over to the States and to remind me of where we started. And, and you know, having worked, all this time, I wasn't 20 years old when this was going on. I was in my you know, late 40s, early 50s. It was just really 
frightening the thought of bringing in so much debt. And I, I, I honestly just didn't know what it meant. You know, is it going to crush the business, the interest payments? And it, it was it was frightening to me. But, you know, fortunately, we sold, sold our way out of it and, you know, we're able to really sell enough that the, and, and our debt, our, our, the company we worked with, a company called Sharpview out of North Carolina, they were great to work with and, you know, really bought into what we were doing. So it worked out quite well. Okay. So walk me through this because this is interestingly, uh, the second time venture debt has come up on the show in maybe the space of a month, maybe two. So I'm totally ignorant to it. So explain this to me. So they, they lend you 6 million bucks yeah. and they, and you, and you have to pay an interest rate on that. Yeah. I'm assuming it's more than prime, like roughly, do you remember what the interest rate was? Yeah, I think I, I'm pretty sure it was 8%, right around 8%. <laughs> At the time, interest rates were probably through four percent. So it's yeah, like, something like that. Yeah, it's a lot more than you have to pay if you were like a great borrower at a bank. For sure, like yep. one or more, whatever. So, okay, so the interest rate is eight percent, and they also get some warrants or some options to buy the business in the in the event of a liquidity event. Is that yeah. is that how that's structured? Well, then, in, on top of the eight percent, they actually received uh, shares that were, you know, a small percentage of the business because the other way we were, we were looking at doing this was to just do a straight equity raise. And, you know, the Serent folks especially said, look, this equity is worth a lot of money. We know it, you know it, but the market might not see it that way today, but we don't want to sell any more shares in the company from their side. And, and you guys don't from your side. And it, it was neat, what's by your, the way. What's your revenue at this point? Ballpark. Yes, still. Uh, well, at this point, we had closed, um, you know, the large deal that I talked about. So we were sort of right at that ten million in revenue. Okay. And have you, are you and Sarah starting to develop some opinion on what the whole company might be worth at ten million in, in yeah. ARR? Yeah, for sure. What are you and, thinking? You know, at the time, um, it, it's tough because it, it's not just based on revenue, but EBITDA and all these types of things. And we still, at this point, weren't really cash flow positive. You know, the old line that every entrepreneur uses, well, we could be anytime. And, you know, I guess we could have been, but, you know, we would have starved the business if we, if we did that. So we were still not cash flow positive. So you could have paid me, a, you know, 10 million times EBITDA and it still would have been zero. So yeah. we tried to value it based on the um, revenue and only the SaaS revenue. So we had little pieces that were services and some other stuff. So we were thinking it was probably anywhere from seven to 10 times the uh, revenue number. Seven to 10 times your ARR. Correct. Or your recurring revenue. And yes. So you had 10 million total, but what proportion of that was ballpark? Yeah, you know, nine-ish. And okay. what would happen is we would go a little over 10, then we would lose that, you know, large contract in New York for three and a half million, and then we'd get some other ones. And so it was sort of jumping around that number a little bit. The other sort okay. of worrisome piece was that we had a lot of revenue concentration issues. So we had a few really big customers and then, you know, a decent number of smaller ones. So people would say, well, what happens if you lose that customer? And, you know, they're right. But I guess my answer was, what do you want me to do? Avoid revenue concentration by not winning big customers? It was just, you know, the, the only way we could see it would be to just keep trying to sell big customers, but they don't come along all that often. Like your number at bats was just not as high as like in say a B2C business. Yeah, yeah. So of the nine in recurring, what would the largest on a percentage basis customer have represented? Uh, you know, our number one was like five at the time. Five million. Yeah. 
Wow. So more than 50% of the yeah. ARR from one. Okay. Yeah. So that's interesting. But you still thought the business was around maybe maybe seven times your ARR. So yeah, something or something around that. Yeah. Okay. So again, I'm so you're running short of cash, but you got a really valuable asset. And and so this venture debt idea of, hey, we'll give you six million bucks, that'll help you, you know, meet your short term. We'll get an interest rate of eight percent, and we'll take some equity, which is small, yeah, equity. small equity stake. Yeah, I mean, you okay. see, kind of, I, I kind of felt like there weren't any great options, but it seemed like the best. And, yeah, uh, well, it sounds like a pretty good option because, uh, yeah, selling equity may have been expensive. It would have been a mistake, and as it turned out, you know, as usual, the CERN folks were right. It would have been a mistake, and it was the right thing to do in hindsight, which was neat. Yeah. So what was uh, the company in North Carolina, this venture debt company, yeah. provider of the debt, what was their recourse if you failed to pay the loan back? Yeah. I mean, that, and that was one of the things we certainly talked about. There was still a business there and there was an asset. So there was an asset, which was our software. And there were a lot of companies that would have been very interested in buying that software because we were being approached by them at this point. Um, so you pledged the shares in the company? In to, to collateralize the and the asset itself, right? I mean, they were a debt funder, so there was an asset, um, you know, the actual software. Like, I don't think we ever had to put in escrow or anything, but there was software that literally would be sold to pay off the debt. And, okay. and, and you know, we had meetings with them and talked about some of the strategic companies that were interested in acquiring the company at that point. So, there was very little doubt in my mind that if we've just failed to be able to operate as a business that the asset could have been sold to certainly cover that debt plus some. And, and did you and Greg have to personally guarantee the debt? No. What about Sarah? Did, did they have to per, like pledge any of their assets beyond their shares in the company? I, I can't remember for sure, but I, I can't imagine that they would do that because of you know their shareholders. And I know I don't think they did either. I yeah. think it was okay. more a matter of, look, this asset is worth something. You know, yeah. because we we could have sold, you know, and I, I make a very strong distinction between selling and being acquired. We could have sold in 2018, 2019 while this is happening, but we would have been selling and it, it would have been a little bit desperate and we would have gotten a lower price. And um, I think that, you know, Sharpview was convinced of that as well, that if everything went terribly they could, you know, sell and and certainly make some money on top of uh, of their debt. You said something I want to double click on. You said you said there's a difference between selling and being acquired. What what do you see as the difference? Yeah, so I learned that very early in dealing with um, uh, David Kennedy or board chair at, at Sarant. Um, I think I made the mistake of saying, "Well, here's who I think we would sell to eventually," and he just sort of gave me the verbal slapping of, uh, "We don't sell companies. Our companies get acquired." And he, he was very like distinct and uh, sort of emphatic about the difference being that, look, if you sell, it's because you want out and you're desperate and, you know, people are going to smell that and they're going to, you know, pay you a lower price. What you really want is people to want to buy your company and they want to acquire it. And that means that, you know, you're going to get a better price. You're going to get a better acquirer, a better fit. They're going to invest more in the business afterwards and your people. He was always just so big, which one of the things I really liked about him on, on you know, what's going to happen to your people after this, not just you, John, I mean, you'll be fine, Greg will be fine, but what's going to happen to your people. And that was really the difference between buying and selling. And I, I, I 
I know it's subtle, but I really, really appreciated it. No, I think it's great. We've heard the term before, great companies are bought, not sold. Excuse me. Uh, yeah, bought, not sold. The idea, similar to uh, the, this idea of, of, of getting acquired versus selling. Awesome. Love it. So you take the debt at 6 at 8%. Uh, and what happens next? So then, um, you know, between the time we took the debt and 2020, when we were acquired, it was more just sort of business as usual. I think just having covenants and things like that, like how much money we have in the bank account, what our revenue is doing, you know, how we're doing from an EBITDA standpoint, put some needed sort of maturity and guide rails on the business at that point. And I had a great CFO, um, you know, that really helped us sort of manage to that and keep us from chasing a shiny ball. Never really my problem. I was called Dr. No for a long time after we got some money. Greg started to call me Dr. Maybe, which isn't the most exciting title ever, but probably more accurate. But so we just sort of started doing businesses as usual. And then what happened was in, in late to, or not late, more, no, actually, I take that back, early 2019, um, Thomson Reuters actually called me, the head of the government division, and said, hey, I want to meet with you. We've been working together. Our teams really liked each other. And he called me back to DC and uh, I flew back with my now fiance and uh, she had some work to do at the Smithsonian. I dropped her off. I went over there and, he, and she says to me, you know, they're going to try to buy you. And I said, no, we're just talking about a partnership. It's going great. And, you know, I walked in the room, cool room overlooking all the Reuters news and glass room. And I think it was done just to impress me, you know, which is super easy. I've already told you how my ego gets in the way of stupid <laughs> stuff like that. So I was like, oh, this is great. And he just came right out and said that, you know, he was interested in acquiring us, um, you know, because we fit so well together and it was a market space that they really wanted to go into. So, you know, I told him that I was flattered, but we were way too early. You know, we had just gotten our equity investment in 2017. Um, Saren's typical holding period is five to 10 years. They mean it. And, um, you know, it just wasn't the right time. I saw a hockey stick in front of us. I saw a lot of opportunity. So, you know, I think the relationship continued to his credit. He wasn't one of these people like, well, if I can't buy you, I'm going to destroy you. You know, and I, there were plenty of those. And, um, and we just continued to work. And then he contacted me in that fall of 2019 again and said, look, I'm still really interested. I want to do this. Can I talk to your board chair? I said, absolutely. So I put them in touch. And, um, you know, my sort of pitch was, look, we're not selling. So if you want to buy us, we're not really interested in sort of messing around and you're going to have to pay for us what we think we're worth. And, you know, no low ball offers, not even like a normal offer, because, you know, you, I'm sure all of your listeners have heard of these auctions and things like this. And we knew we could drive up the price if it was just about price. On the flip side, I really thought they'd be a great partner. I liked this person. I liked his management team. I liked the way they approached the business. So we started into some negotiations with them. And, occurred, and I just want to understand what they saw as the strategic value, because some of your, uh, your fraud cases where you're looking, you're, you're basically buying data in order to, to match, right? So you're, you're taking the government's data, Medicaid data, for example, and then you're buying a third-party data set like a Thomson Reuters data yes. set or an Experian data set or whatever. That's right. And you're matching the two. and and seeing where the discrepancies lie. 
So you're you're effectively a customer of Thomson Reuters that, at this point. They're, that's they're, right. They're that's right. Got it. And so they're saying, let's vertically integrate. Like, let's this will give us direct access to the various government departments. I'm assuming that's part of the value proposition. Yeah, saying. and just sort of a you know more platform play than a data mm-hmm. play. There were assets there that were you know that were also data independent. You know, some of our AI models. We had we had a case tracking system by this time where all of that would go into. So it was a neat platform play for them. It just it fit really well. I mean, it's you know the razor blade and the razors was is kind of true. We were like you know the the razor and they were the mm-hmm. blade, and there was more yeah. money in blades. But you know you're not going to shave with just a blade, and and that's really the way they saw it. And we did too. And it, it just made made a whole lot of sense. Okay, so the board chair that. Thomson Reuters asked to speak with is the is the is the guy that you referenced earlier from Serenity. Yes, correct. Yeah. Okay. How did you feel when he, the guy from Thomson Reuters asked to talk to the person from Serenity? I thought it was great. Um, you know, we were totally aligned. Uh, I had it's sort of like kids with parents just say, "Well, my parents won't let me do that," so I would use Serenity that way. And, you know, sort of say, oh, that's really neat. I, you know, I love this idea, but, eh, you know, they've got half the business. We got the business. They're probably not going to be interested. Um, so I kind of used it that way. And David knew that we would talk about it um, at Serenity. So when they decided to call, I knew that, you know, David and I would be totally aligned, um, you know, in terms of our messaging. And, and, and that was true because we believed it, right? I mean, we believed we had a big runway in front of us and it was too early. And, we believed all those things. I also knew and, on the flip side, David wanted the same thing for me, for my people, for the company, for the space. He loved what we did. I mean, he thought we were doing good in the world. That was really important to Saren. If you look at the businesses they invest in, they do good. And I don't know, when you have that kind of conviction, it's not just about cash. It's It just makes things a lot easier. Did you... So David is the fellow's name, the board chair. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So did you and David actually have the good cop, bad cop conversation and say, okay, the Thompson guy wants to talk to you, David. Why don't you be the bad cop? I'll be the good cop. Like, did you guys have that conversation? Did it just naturally kind of fall into place without proactively addressing it directly? That conversation took place from the time I left Thompson Reuters to go pick up my fiance at the Smithsonian. So it literally happened immediately. I called David. He always picked up the phone for me, even though he's a busy guy. And we had that conversation. And, and uh, you know, and, and it, it was easier. And he would always tell me, look, you have to deal with these people daily. They're your partners. And you need to be the good cop and partner, you know, just to do business. And, you know, your business is important. It's important for the country. It's important for, you know, people that you're protecting. We were actually protecting people, right? People were being thrown in prison because of our software that were doing really heinous crimes, not just financial crimes, but, you know, crimes against individuals. So we, you know, we really believed that I needed to be that good partner out in the community and and, and they could be a little bit more of, even, it, it's still bad cop, but it was more of like, you know, a strict dad cop or something like yeah. that. Objective, financially <laughs> driven. This, this has got to make sense financially. Thank you. That person. sounds yeah. that sounds better than what I said. Thank you. I get it. Though. Good <laughs> cop, bad cop. We'll just use a bare phrase for the short term. Got it. Okay. So David uh, has the conversation, and what was that like? Uh, I think it went very positively. They liked each other. 
both of those people were very difficult not to like, honest, hardworking, understand their business. And so I knew they were going to like each other. They liked each other, um, liked each other's businesses. And it was, uh, you know, very straightforward. So then we went to a board meeting. We had one a couple of weeks later and David brought it up with the board and said, hey, you know, considering having a discussion, we think we should. And then we started into the discussions. So then, you know, it was sort of just a typical due diligence where we, we put up a data room and we had all our contracts up there and all our finances and everything else. The thing that wasn't typical about it was, you know, COVID was starting and all hell was breaking loose in the country while, while we were, you know, starting to do these uh, diligence sessions. Yeah, I want to get to COVID because obviously a big part of your business related to the medical field and clearly that. And, and all the other stuff that happened after COVID. But before we go there, so you, around the time you raised the, the debt, you figured the business might be worth uh, nine times seven, 63, some, some more in that space. What, at what point did the specter of valuation come up? Did you raise it and say, we're thinking this is sort of where we're at? Or did they, did you want, did David sort of insist that they come to the table with their first offer? Yeah, it was uh, the latter. So I actually thought, you know, because we were talking about like, we don't want to sort of mess around on, um, you know, doing a bunch of diligence. And then we come to a number that we didn't like. Um, so I went to David and said, you know, maybe I should tell him sort of where I think we are. And I did have a number in my head at that time. Um, and then David actually said, no, nah, I think we should really let them, but we should get it early so we can tell if they're serious or not. So, you know, they came with a range early um, that sounded serious enough to enter into the discussions. And, you know, this was prior to COVID. This was a few months prior to COVID. Um, so we just wanted to make sure that we were sort of in that range. And then once COVID came, you know, we didn't know it at the time, but high end of range, low end of the range, there'd be a lot of sort of going back and forth on that, at least between David and me. Yeah, I'm assuming... Your number was north of sixty three. If that, if the yes, by that time it was well north of sixty three. Yeah, because yeah. we we continued to do business, added some customers, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And so they came to the table, and so w their offer was clearly uh, in the ballpark enough yes. to continue the conversations. Yes. Yeah. It and and then we started the diligence process. Um, they brought a large team out to. Um, to Sacramento uh, to you know meet my team, have their team meet. A lot of us had already met because we were doing business together, but to start that process, like they hadn't met our ISO, for example, um, you know, and and just understanding our security posture and a little bit more about how our technology um, not worked but was written, how we did you know code reviews, all of that sort of business maturity that you would expect. Then they went back and we started the process, and that's really when COVID. Hit. So we didn't see them physically again for the hmm. entire process, which was totally bizarre. And then the other piece of it that was really crazy is when we eventually settled on a number, um, which was you know good for me, they and for Saren. Um, well, you remember what happened with the stock market? It just went berserk in the wrong direction. So yeah. I'm getting up in the morning and I'm checking Thompson Reuters stock, and it's down. You know, 20, 25%. And so I'm just waiting for that call to say, well, look, everybody's down 25%. It's not just us. That means you too. And, you know, we're going to have to reduce what we're, you know, going to pay for you by that same number if you're still interested. Just it didn't come. The call didn't come. 
Um, I honestly, to this day, I don't know what I would have done. I wouldn't have gone that far down. But like everybody else, I had no idea what the world was going to do. And if you know much about government, they tend to overreact to certain things. If there's, you know, a little bit of a budget crisis, let's just shut everything down, right? And so I knew that the pandemic had the, you know, possible uh, outcome would be for government that just everything would shut down. Maybe some contracts would be canceled. Maybe we wouldn't get any new contracts. So I was frightened, very frightened at the time. It was it was just a very crazy period. Yeah, it it was that indeed. So Thomson Reuters stock is going down like a rock, like everybody's yeah, stock, and you're yeah. waiting for them to retrade and say, "Yep." We, but 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 it never happened. The the I googled the sale price because I'm a curious bastard, and I think on the internet there's a number floating around of 125 million dollars. I don't necessarily need you to confirm or deny, but that it, that sounds. Similar to kind of the types of numbers that we're talking about. So yeah. it was a big outcome for everybody, including Sarant, who did well out of the deal. I'm just doing some of the math here. Their return was pretty good, right? Yeah, they did well. I mean, they, the neat thing about Sarant is they just don't lose money on companies as opposed to like that other one I told you about that, you know, has a few home runs and then a bunch of foul balls or strikeouts. But, you know, that's sort of their business model. So Sarant does well. Um, I think it, they calculate everything based on you know IRRs and internal rates of return. And that's varied on what they paid, what they received, how long they held it, all these types of things. So we sold early. In many ways, it would have been nicer to stay, certainly in hindsight, but we didn't know at the time. Um, but they did well. And I think they would certainly do that again, and, and we would too. Mm-hmm. And I got to tell you, when the call, we finally got on the call March 13th of 2020 uh, to finalize the deal. and. I think it was at like seven or six thirty in the morning, and up till that very moment, I was still waiting for a call that either the deal was off or, you know, that terms had changed. And when it finally happened, it was incredibly emotional. I remember my wife, who is not a morning person, but she got up to make me some eggs that morning and just be there with me. She said she'd never seen me look like that. Just all those years and all that stress to just have it, you know, not go away because then I felt a new burden like an hour later to TR to make sure it worked well. But it was just a a really incredible moment with everything else going very, very rewarding, but difficult. And it's, I don't know. It's hard for me to explain. I get emotional thinking about it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, all of our emotions at the time were heightened because of what was going on in For the sure. world. And then obviously this incredible event. How did David from Sarant react to the consummation of the deal? Like what was his reaction? Just um very positive. Uh, you know, told me he was proud of me and the team. Um we you know, it was funny. He had bought a bottle of wine, um, a French bottle of wine from 2011. And he said he checked the maturity. And the maturity would be like the perfect time to drink. It would be like 2022 or 23. And he said, that's when we were drinking it. When we get acquired by a really neat company at that time. So here it was 2020 and the wine wasn't ready. And he kind of knew that the company wasn't quite as long as they wanted to take it either. But we'd been through such a grind and then COVID everything else that 
I imagine it was it was a lot smaller for him because he's been through this so many times. But I, I feel like probably a lot of the feelings were similar to what I was feeling at the time too. Do you recall what the bottle of like the the uh, the winery was? I don't. It was a French wine because I'm French. David's Irish, and he, he, you know, fortunately we have better wines than the Irish do. And uh, <laughs> I ended up um, just about six months ago. A number of um, Pandera people came over to the house, and we ended up uh, finally opening it. And, oh, good! How was yeah, that? It was great, and it was uh, the wine was great, and the people were great. It was just fun to talk about some of the old times. Fun. Are you up for a quick lightning round before I let you go? Of course. Awesome. What was the slimiest trick an acquirer tried to play on you in the process of building your business? And when I say acquire, you could also use investor. But what was the slimiest, most underheaded, you know, thing somebody tried to pull on you? Well, there are a bunch, but I would say the one that really comes to mind is we put a partnership agreement where another company larger than us was going to prime a contract for us. So they put like a six page, you know, prime sub agreement together and like buried on page four in two little lines that I think they were hoping I wouldn't see. It said, if we partner on this deal with you and we win it, then we get like 15% of your company. I couldn't believe it. So I, I literally read this and said, this, this can't be. And certainly it was. And I called them and said, look, we obviously can't do that. And I don't want to partner with you. And, and we haven't talked since. I mean, literally wow. just trying to slip that in. We're going to take 15% of the equity in your company. In my company for partnering with us. And we never had that discussion. And they just wanted me to sign. And I'm like, unbelievable. And six point font on page 39. That's yeah. terrible. What was the biggest mistake? You know. Hindsight being 2020, you made during the process of selling your company. So I'd invite you to think about the first tranche where you sold the Serent, yeah. uh, 50%, or if there's a better story, the, 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 uh, the sale to Thomson Reuters. But what was the biggest mistake that you personally made that you'd like a mulligan on? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to give myself a break. I think more of the mistakes came on the second one rather than the first one. But you know, there are a number. I mean, certainly... I probably would have invested more in my own accountants and attorneys, all the step up clauses and everything else that you know ended up costing me in taxes, you know that type of thing. But probably the biggest one that I would give myself a break on was the earnout that we got as part of the Thomson Reuters one for dragging me. I argued that it was a holdback; it wasn't an earnout because it basically came out of the sales price, and we would earn that back over the next, um, I think it was twenty months, and it wasn't on top of what we'd already earned. And I was literally calling him saying, you know, my ex-wife is going to get more out of this initial check than I am. I don't, it just didn't make sense to me. And then their, you know, comment was, look, it's the deal. So you accept it or you don't. And like I said, COVID was going on and everything, but it was aggressive and it nearly killed Greg and me, you know, four months after we did the contract and COVID hit, sure enough, everything had shut down. I was going to leave. Because I didn't think there was any way I could make it. I'd gotten bitter about it. Um, and it just didn't sit right with me. And then the government swung 180 degrees and started seeing all the fraud and COVID. And our business just exploded, you know, in a good way. Mm. So we were able to get to that earnout, But it, it took a lot out of Greg and me. And it probably, in hindsight, led to, you know, decisions that shouldn't have been made. Like going after a certain market or an opportunity so we could hit more of the earn out, but maybe it wasn't best for the long-term business. You know, those types of things. And I can't think of anything in particular, but it just felt that way. And what proportion tough. of your 
what proportion of your total consideration did you for you personally was with that risk in the earnout? I can't remember percentages, but it was a, it was about two million dollars. Oh wow! So significant amount of money. Yeah, 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 yeah. What was the lowest point emotionally that you reached during your exit? During the exit itself? Yeah, um, prior to the earnout. Uh, or prior to the earnout, which was at, at, prior to leaving Thompson Reuters. Yeah, I'm, I'm assuming the earnout was the lowest point. So that's going to just be my, my default. I'm talking about before you took the check from Thompson. So you, you had Saren as a partner yeah. and you were talking to them. Did you reach an emotional kind of ebb during that process? Yeah, you know, I think we all did because of, because of, you know, COVID. Um, I'll give you a great example. Like I had, I, I had just come back from Washington State. They were looking at replacing their. Medicaid fraud, waste and abuse system. And we just done a great pitch. Amanda was amazing as usual. And we were convinced we were going to win this very large opportunity. It's top 10 state. And on the way back on the plane, I sat next to the guy with a mask on. He was sick. Sure enough, I got COVID because that's where it started up in Seattle. I don't know if you remember sure. that. Some yeah, I remember. Cases. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, um, and then Washington just ended up canceling the contract. And it just was like devastating. You put all this work in. COVID's affecting us anyway. They canceled the contract because of COVID. I'm waiting for this call that Saren's not going to do the deal anymore. And it was just low. I went for a hike in the Sierras with um, Sarah and my wife. And I think she just talked me off the edge, you know, and said, it's, it's going to be okay. But I was just thinking I spent all this time working on everything, all my, you know, I'm one of those guys. I'm very black and white. And, uh, you know, the sky's falling. Everybody's going to, you know, pull out all these years and, and, you know, it turned out it it was really sort of the opposite of that, but it, it it was hard. It was a very difficult time. What about highest emotional moment for you? Yeah, you know, I think um, there were three of those that just come to mind. The first was when we got our first customer, Iowa, and I you know walked out of my office and told my employees, and uh, you know, guess me. Um, because everybody was working so hard and I know they had doubts whether they were going to be able to continue to do this and they, they wanted it to work so bad. And that was a big one. Um, and then I think the, that moment that I described with TR when we finally did that contract as well was just a, a really, really huge moment for me. And then I think the other one was when Greg and I earned that earnout, but it wasn't because of the money. It was it was just more of confirmation that we were a good fit, that I'd worked really hard and Greg had worked his tail off to, to try to make that integration work. And it was just confirmation that we had done that work. We'd done the right thing. You know, I think we've been good people. We weren't always the easiest to get along with because we've got, you know, opinions as well. But it's just, I don't know. I when I take money from other people and put it into my business, you'd think there'd be a huge sense of relief, but in a lot of ways, it's a gigantic burden on you because you feel like you're responsible for all these people. And if you're taking money from good people, whether it's Sarant or Sharpview or TR, you want to do right by it. You know, it's your reputation. It's what you built up. And when that moment comes, when, you know, you've done right by them, it's, it's a huge thing. So I know you asked for one and I gave you a couple, but there were some highs. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate it. As you prepared for your exit, uh, was there anything that you, in, in addition to obviously leaning on Dave, because he'd been through this a few times, but was there anything that you did to educate yourself about 
the process of exiting? Any course, a book, uh, uh, anything you can point our listeners to that they might find helpful in, in educating themselves? Yeah, I mean, honest, honestly, it came from, I think, mostly two places. And I, I'm not a big book guy. I, you know, I, lo- I love to read business memoirs. I don't read a lot of business books. I mean, everybody's read good to great, a few of those. But, you know, I, I love reading business memoirs and, and going through the exits and understanding, you know, sort of mistakes that other people do and, and good things. And so I read a lot of those types of books. So the shoe dog and the Netflix story and those types of things. The other was just, you know, I, I had built up relationships with a number of investors, you know, local and in other areas that just, I think, gave good counsel. They knew me. They understood my, my, you know, things I do well and things I don't, which are, you know, considerable. I mean, that's, I hope most people understand that. And they would just sort of caution me on what I'm being enthusiastic or what my blind spots were. And so that, I think, network was really important. And then honestly, it's going to sound like I'm blowing smoke, but, you know, podcasts like yours, I just think are really important because you get to hear from people that have actually done it and you you learn from those types of things. You see the humility people have. And it just sort of, for me, gave me enough to move forward and also to realize, you know, if they can do it, maybe I can too. And, you know, I I think that was just super important for me. And I I continue to listen to those today. Last question. Tell me you bought yourself a trophy to commemorate this win. So... (laughs) The uh, I had an interesting pandemic. I think my biggest trophy was my wife. Um, so, you know, during the pandemic, I you literally got a trophy wife. Yeah, I got it. I got a trophy wife in a lot of wins. Um, she's not just beautiful, but a, a fantastic person. And um, you know, people talk about the pandemic and how hard it was, and, and it was, and still is for many people. But you know, my business was acquired. I got married. I brought on two more kids and a dog. And, uh, you know, we, we sold both our houses, bought two more houses. It's, it's been nuts. So I don't know if it's a trophy as much as it's a little bit of a trophy lifestyle. Now, one thing I did do when TR closed down our office, like many companies did, and I went and grabbed our big Pondera sign from the lobby and it's upstairs in my game room and, uh, on the wall. And it's just kind of a a neat reminder of, of a really fun and important time in my life. I love that. I love that. And you've also written a book, which I'm thrilled and actually eagerly anticipating. I think it's it's not yet available, uh, but it will be coming available. It's called a ten year overnight success. In in the same vein as Shoe Dog from Phil Knight and and others, you've really written a memoir describing your life's journey. Tell me more about it. I did. Yeah. Thanks for um, for bringing it up. I just. When I was done, I felt like there were so many extraordinary people on stories that I, you know, I just wanted to, you know, honor some of the people, frankly, that helped me and just describe the journey so that other people, like a lot of your listeners that have been through similar journeys, um, you know, might be able to relate to. And then also people that are thinking about entering into the journey, it might give them some inspiration to move forward. But I just wanted to be very honest. You know, I talk about yeah, a whole chapter on on my experiences in the Chick-fil-A parking lot near the office where I would just go every day for lunch, order a Chick-fil-A sandwich and a cup of water and think about what the hell I'm going to do, you know, because things have gone so badly. Because you're still like, alive, man. Just absolutely brutal. And then, you know, finish my sandwich and go back to the office and be cheerful and optimistic. And just, you know, what sort of the things that you go through. Um, and it's not so much to teach. It's just to sort of describe my journey and the ups and downs and the mistakes and, you know, the hopes that someone else, you know, 
might feel better about their own journey, you know, honestly. Yeah. And and it was it was just fun to get it out. It was very cathartic. So, you know, I'm in a very confusing and difficult process of trying to figure out how to publish that, but I'll be uh, ho- hopefully coming out shortly. And if you cool. buy it, you'll be copy number 14. So I'd really appreciate it. <laughs> there you go. My goal is 20 <laughs> copies sold. There you go. I, I have a feeling, a hunch, you might exceed that. A 10-year overnight success. John, if people want to reach out to you, is, is LinkedIn best or are you a Twitter guy? What's the best way to reach you? Yeah, well, you can imagine being in the business I'm in, fraud detection. I try to keep a kind of a low profile on social media. Um, yeah, it's I often used for some of that, but I am a LinkedIn user and that is uh, definitely the best way to get through to me. Okay. And we'll put John's LinkedIn profile in the show notes at builttocell.com. John, thanks for doing this. Hey, thank you very much, John. Very much appreciate it. And there you have it for today's episode between John and John. If you enjoyed today's podcast, then as always, hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And if you want to help support Built to Sell Radio, you can either do so by heading over to Apple Podcasts, where there you have a chance to leave a rating and review, or share this out with a colleague who you feel like would truly enjoy today's episode. If you want to watch this full podcast, I would encourage you to head over to our YouTube channel, which is at Built to Sell Radio, where there you can watch the full video interview from today's episode. If you know someone who would be a great fit to be a guest right here on the podcast, you can actually nominate them by heading over to builttocell.com slash nominate. There you'll have the chance to nominate yourself or someone else to be a guest right here on the show with John. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, I'd encourage you to head over to our show notes page, which you can find over at builttocell.com. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling today's audio engineering. And thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisors are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan, and we'll talk to you again next week.